You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Commodities down. Also, bonds up, but stocks also down. That's the tone of the market today. We're taping relatively early for the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I've got Mark Chandler, chief strategist at Bannockburn Global with me, and also Amanda Agati, who's the chief investment strategist at PNC Financial Services Group. Welcome to Real Vision, or welcome back, I should say. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks, Ed. It's always good to see you. Yeah, it's great to see you guys, even though, of course, Mark, I see that you're wearing a tie. Uh, you know, uh, neither Amanda nor I are wearing ties. So I'll, 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 I'll give you a pass on the, the old school attire. Thank you. Such formalities. If it means anything, I've got sweatpants on, too. <laughs> Excellent. Well, you heard my introduction there, uh, Mark and Amanda. Um, let me tell you how I'm thinking about this, is that in January timeframe, I was looking at the markets, and uh, when I looked across different asset classes, generally speaking, what I would call the tone was a reflation trade. But the tone that you see today in today's market with WTI and Brent off 3%, 4% actually now that I'm looking for WTI, uh, you have commodities down, you have equities down, but uh, you have bonds rallying. It almost seems like it's the opposite of the reflation trade, as if the reflation trade is taking a pause. Uh, let me ask you first, Amanda, what are you seeing? What are you thinking about that mix? Well, we really think that uh, this market has moved too far and too fast. You know, if you think about when this reflation trade really kicked off, it was right after or in the midst of the Pfizer vaccine efficacy news back in November. And the market has just absolutely been on a tear since then. The real disconnect for us is this distinction between a sentiment shift, which is really what we've seen and a lack of fundamental follow-through or fundamental improvement. And so the market, of course, a discounting mechanism, rallying on the hopes and the assumption that we're going to get right back to pre-COVID, pre-pandemic norms. And of course, we all know that it's a long, strange trip yet to get from here to there with how slow the vaccine distribution and deployment has been. And so I really think this is more of a recognition, finally, of the reality that we still have a ways to go here. We're hashtag not out of the woods yet. And so I think some of the wind is coming out of the sails in the market as that recognition is starting to come into place. The other thing too, the market had rallied a number of times over the course of the beginning of the year on the hopes of stimulus and additional kind of catalyst coming into the system. Of course, now we have the 1.9 trillion coming into the system and the market's like, all right, well, what have you done for me lately? And so absent a real fundamental improvement and a series of meaningful catalysts over the short term, I think we find ourselves in a pretty choppy directionless market. Right, yeah, Mark, what do you think about that? Uh, what, what's your view here? 
Yeah, so I agree that there's something macro going on, but I wonder if the uh, pullback in commodities, uh, some of the other markets are maybe two other things besides a macro explanation. One is just a technical correction. You know, we've seen this in the stock market before, like the S&Ps, a sharper, deeper, longer lasting sell-off last month and it made new highs earlier here in March, and now it's pulling back again. That pullback is still relatively shallow, but I hear you, it's broader. It's including the Russell 2000, includes the NASDAQ. Uh, but I wonder too if, uh, if uh, here's what I think is going on, and I think maybe to begin with really the commodity space. The reason I think commodities rallied last year was not because, simply because we were anticipating stronger growth in the US or Europe this year. It was because China was buying and building up their inventories. And now it seems as China has uh, begun uh, either slowing down its inventory build or unleashing some of its inventories to help quell price increases as a factory of the world, we've seen commodity prices back off a bit. Uh, I think oil is partly the same story. Uh, I think what's, what's interesting to me about oil right now is that the U.S. has come down pretty hard, uh, both uh, beginning with the Obama administration through the Trump and now even Biden coming down hard on Europe's uh, gas uh, Nord Stream 2 pipeline from Russia. And yet uh, in the recent data suggests that Russia is the third largest supplier of oil to the U.S., and so, uh, so I do think there's been this shift going on in the oil market. It's been important to Venezuelan oil not available to the U.S. refiners. They like that uh, some of the ones, some of the larger refiners like that heavy crude stuff. So they're getting it from Russia. But I think that in general, we have to be optimistic. I think officials are optimistic as well that growth is going to be accelerating. Here, growth in Q1, maybe a lot of economists have been revising it down, some soft economic data recently. But we're talking about, say, above a five, maybe even above 6% growth in Q2 and Q3. And I think Amanda's point earlier was right as well, that the, uh, that the real inflation scare still lies ahead of us as those negative inflation reads from last spring drop off. So I'm still thinking that come June, uh, the June FOMC meeting, I think that the market would have reached what the Fed would regard as uh, substantial uh, progress towards the goals. I think in the next Friday, Good Friday, we get the jobs number for March. And I think the early estimate around 600,000, you make some conservative assumptions for the next three months, April, May, and June. So by the time the Fed meets again, there'll be over a million jobs having been created. Unemployment would have fallen probably below 6%. And inflation, partly because of that base effect, is going to be well north of 2%. So I think we're looking in a, in a, uh, a good situation on a macro view, but I'm not so sure that the underlying trends have really changed all that much. There's some churning here. And I think that, uh, maybe to Amanda's point as well, is I think a lot of people uh, on the retail side have acted like I have, and that is uh, move to the sidelines, that easy well, it seemed to be easy money in the big bull market. Uh, I don't know whether how much it was a vaccine, how much it was the U.S. election, both in early November, had a huge rally, big soft in the dollar. And now that it seems that the market's gotten more choppy and people like myself, I think, have moved much more to the sidelines. Yeah, you know, um, I think it's interesting there, Amanda, because uh, when you talk about the churning, Mark's talking about the churning too. Uh, he's talking about moving to the sidelines as well. My question is, uh, so what next? I mean, you know, you could think about the markets as forward looking. So the markets looked forward. They said vaccines, good things are going to happen. Now we've gotten those good things, but we're still in the middle of a pandemic. So what does come next for the economy slash markets after this churning is over? Or, or is that too broad a question? 
Well, there's a lot to unpack in that question for sure. I think in the market psyche, the market's looking for a big stimulative catalyst. So the market wants a massive infrastructure package, right? Like I always joke that the market is like my five-year-old in a candy store. I don't know why for the record I use that analogy because that's like torturing myself, but it's this idea that the market's just craving the sugar high for more and more stimulus. And so I think the market would love to see a big infrastructure package that certainly could could be a fundamental catalyst to keep this rally going. But we think that's really tough to achieve, even in a year where we have Congress as kind of aligned uh, on this topic, we think it's very difficult to get done. And you can't really get it done, in our view, without adding tax hikes into the equation. And so that's gonna put the brakes on all kinds of things if that starts to come to fruition. And so, you know, that, that's kind of the next big uh, exogenous catalyst to come in. At the end of the day, for us, where the rubber meets the road is in fundamentals. What's happening in terms of earnings growth? And unfortunately for the S&P 500, we really haven't seen meaningful acceleration in revisions. Um, we think that there's still a lot of significant points of stress, particularly in the value side of the market. So if you think about what dominates value, it's energy, it's financials, it's consumer discretionary, it's REITs. Where is the fundamental improvement in really any of those? I mean, for energy, I think you could argue perhaps WTI rallying is a little bit helpful for the E&P companies, but everyone else in the sector is still struggling. And when you look at the futures curve for WTI, it's still very depressed, you know, below 52 or so bucks a barrel and North American shale production and profitability usually sits on average more in the $55 per barrel range. So a very tough slog still ahead for energy, even with the pent up demand argument that is still to come into the equation. We're just not seeing pockets of fundamental improvement. And so while the market has rallied to fairly elevated valuation levels, right? It's not a stretch to say valuations are indeed stretched. I just keep coming back to this idea that the market is effectively pricing for perfection when for all the reasons we've talked about so far, the backdrop is really anything but that. And so at the end of the day, the most important catalyst is what happens on the earnings front and the free cash flow front. And I think we rallied assuming that we're going to get back there, but it's just going to take time. And so that's why I said in the beginning, I think we're in a little bit of a slow your roll, kind of choppy, high volatility regime because we haven't seen that fundamental improvement. We can't sustain ourselves on just stimulus program after stimulus program. At some point, the safety net has to be walked back and the market and the economy has to stand on their own. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, I just don't yeah, know the ironic thing. Oh, yeah. Well, the ironic thing, by the way, I'll let you uh, get in on this too, Mark, uh, is when uh, Amanda was talking, uh, she mentioned that, uh, uh, you know, churning and we were talking about and she mentioned the word volatility. Interestingly, obviously, the VIX volatility gauge went below 20 
at the same time you are getting this churning, there's a sense that there's a rotation. This whole rotation that everyone's talking about of value over growth is being unwound. You know, the Russell 2000 is, is underperforming relative to, you know, the gangbusters uh, growth that we saw post-vaccine. Uh, How is it possible that the VIX is, is showing a muted level when we get, we're getting this level of churning that's going on? That's an interesting question. For me, there's really a, the issue really is if we're going to go back to uh, pre-pandemic things, uh, economy is going to reopening. I mean, uh, perhaps it's a, perhaps Q3. Uh, I think that uh, we're not just we're not just in the middle of the pandemic. We're at the tail end of it uh, for the most part. Of course, it's going to linger for years, perhaps. But as far as getting our lives back to normal, I think uh, I think that Q3 looks like a reasonable timetable. And you think about what what the conditions were in the economy before then. And the, uh, the stock market was rallying. And in late 2019, people also thought the stock market was overvalued, could be justified by fundamentals. And I think that what we're missing in our fair value models is liquidity, a liquidity driven. And I think that this is what I think this is what we're seeing in other markets. I, not to bring it up too much, but to talk about the cryptocurrency space as well. Yeah. I think we're seeing lots of liquidity. And where is it going to go? I mean, we're still talking about. Uh, what are we talking today? Maybe $13 trillion or so negative yielding bonds in the world. Um, so going back to uh, 2019, it sounds good. It's like, well, especially after last year, but it really doesn't get us out of this and really help answer the questions here. For me, I'd say the next big catalyst, though, is the opposite of what we have now. And right now, I think what we have is a, this divergence where nobody has the, uh, the wallet or the political will to spend like the U.S., we're talking about roughly, say, 13 14% of GDP between December and this bill that was passed earlier this month. Amanda's right, there's the infrastructure bill coming. Uh, I've seen estimates as two to four trillion dollars. Some of it will be, some of it looks like it'll have to be funded by taxation, though that is a tricky issue now. But I think that this, uh, so we got monetary policy divergence too. You think the Federal Reserve is buying $120 billion a month worth of bonds, treasuries, and agencies. We've got a very uh, so a very aggressive monetary and fiscal policy, and I hear you about the vaccine. It hasn't rolled out as fast as I wish. I still haven't gotten the vaccine, but we're doing. The U.S. is doing so much better than most other countries, uh, leaving aside maybe the U.K. and a handful of Middle Eastern countries. So I, I think that uh, uh, what this means really is this divergence. To me, is one of the big themes. Uh, today, the dollar index is above its 200-day moving average. Uh, maybe it closed above there yesterday for the first time since uh, uh, since May of last year. And what what strikes me is though the next big move would have to be the opposite of this. What's the opposite of a divergence? Convergence. Somewhere along the way, uh, it'll click in Europe. They'll have the vaccine. They'll begin rolling it out. Maybe it's a little bit later than us, a month later, two months later. But it, it doesn't uh, negate the recovery there. It just postpones it. And I think that there is where you might find value. You know, the European stock market has underperformed the U.S. for years. Every so often, uh, people like myself get in our heads that this is the year it outperforms. But this year is a good chance, partly because technology is not as represented as it is in ours. And the financials, which Amanda mentioned, are more represented. And they're off to whatever, up 20 percent or so this year. You know, let me uh, go a little bit further with that before I ask Amanda about both. I'm going to ask you, Amanda, about uh, both Europe and emerging markets. But I want to ask you a little bit about currencies, since I know at Bank Burn Global, you guys are about currencies. 
I think I was teeing this up to you before what we were talking about in terms of the reflation trade. And you said, you know, yes, triple divergence, monetary, fiscal, and vaccine. And then you talked about the dollar and the euro, the 200-day moving average. Can you walk me through the dollar and the euro and how you're seeing those uh, currencies? Sure. I, I think that the uh, first thing to realize is the dollar uh, rallied initially as the pandemic struck. And since March of last year, the dollar has actually been trending a bit lower against all the major currencies. And the uh, uh, the uh, the bottom of it, the dollar's bottom so far, was in early January. It was that Wednesday when people were, were marching in capital and when the ADP reported a, a worse than expected uh, jobs report estimate, and it didn't lead to new dollar sales. That sort of marked the bottom of the, of the dollar. And I think what we're seeing now uh, has really been an upside correction. We're just getting past those Fibonacci-type retracement that people look for. And uh, uh, so I, I think that what we're seeing, though, is primarily a correction to what happened in the November and December election vaccine dollar slides the last two months. We get a correction. And I think it maybe has a little bit more legs to it. But it, it's not like we just discovered the stronger dollar. The dollar has been rallying. This is the, finishing up the third month where it's been generally firmer. And I think, again, it's being driven by uh, higher interest rates and just a broader sense of divergence. And uh, so I look for a further dollar gains, but I'm still a dollar bear in the big picture, thinking that the third big dollar rally since the end of Bretton Woods is over, and that after this uh, after this upside correction, uh, the dollar's downtrend will resume. And the framing for that, I suspect, will be the twin deficits. Most of our most of our trading partners have budget deficits. Nearly everybody in the world has a budget deficit, but the U.S. is one of the few large countries. I think in the eurozone, Japan, uh, China, uh, that uh, that has a, the U.S. has a large current account deficit, and the cost of this rapid expansion, this huge fiscal stimulus, I think is going to be a larger uh, net import. That is to say that uh, we're going to be importing more. Our trade deficit is going to worsen, and so just at that moment in time where everybody and their mother is long the dollar and they're talking about divergence, I think that that's when convergence comes back. And when it does come back, it's the twin deficits that acts as the Achilles heel for the dollar. Right. Interesting. So, Amanda, to you on that, uh, but from a investing perspective, convergence, meaning that uh, after we get the delay in Europe, which we're getting now because they're in lockdown, um, that eventually they'll come uh, come forward. How do you play? First of all, is that your your base case? And then how do you play that? How would you, how do the emerging markets figure into this as well? Well, there's a lot uh, to unpack in this story. I want to make sure we go back to the high volatility story, too, because I think that's an important part of this dynamic. We're actually bullish on emerging markets. We've used uh, the, the sell-off or the slight correction that we've seen in EM over the last few weeks as an opportunity to rebalance not only tactically, but also strategically. So we're making adjustments, thinking a very long-tailed horizon, not just 12 to 18 or even 24 months. And we've funded it from developed international. So I think I'm on the opposite end of the trade for Mark, unfortunately. But we really think the story in terms of the thesis around emerging markets is really powerful. And we're actually at one of those inflection points. You know, the shift between developed and emerging tends to happen over very long cycles, 10 plus years in the making. And so we think that this is a pivot point for the baton to be handed off from the developed world to the emerging world. If you think about emerging market countries, 
they've been, if you believe the data as a caveat, um, they've been able to manage through the pandemic largely better than most of the developed world. Still pockets and fits and starts more recently, but in general, that has enabled them to get their economies open more fully and faster. Again, not fully reopened, but they are leading the developed uh, world for sure. It's also had important implications for earnings growth, right? In 2020, they didn't fall anywhere near as far as the developed world did. And yet it's the brightest star in the equity asset class universe from an earnings growth perspective in 2021. The valuation argument favors EM over the developed world. And so even, even in a scenario where we start to see some fits and starts around uh, additional reopenings, they have plenty more tools in the policy toolbox to bail them out if they need to go there. That's not our base case, but as a safety net, they have more than the developed world. So we definitely are big fans of emerging markets. And we think that this is a really interesting and attractive entry point. Developed International has had structural challenges forever and ever. I'm not sure that we've really seen a lot of resolution on that front. You know, the the challenge that we see in this is the, the economy was shut down in response to a pandemic, right? This wasn't a natural boom and bust kind of phenomenon as a function of an asset bubble bursting. And so we haven't really had the clearing of the decks or the restructuring that you would normally see coming out of a recession and into a recovery. And so we think there are just still a lot of structural headwinds for much of developed international. I'll give you that um, there's a definitely a positive yield story. So in a yield-starved world, which we continue to find ourselves in, a very attractive, sustainable yield-generating place to be, but still struggling to find what those fundamental growth catalysts are, other than just a little bit of a snapback from record no activity. Right. You know, uh, when you talk about emerging markets, I think about Latin America, Brazil, for instance, which is getting crushed by coronavirus now, Argentina uh, versus, say, like Thailand. Uh, you, do, are there uh, regional differences? And like, how do you have a weighting that you're looking at in EM? Well, we're definitely playing emerging markets through actively managed strategies. Our view is not to buy the index. However, I would say that the index has gone through really significant composition changes over time. It's not what it once was, even just three to five years ago. The exposures in EM are very different. And so I agree with you, there is some stress, certainly in Latin America and Brazil in particular. That's really the, the commodity producing, commodity exporting exposure. So I guess uh, on the one hand, if you are worried about an inflationary spike, that gives you a little bit of juice in terms of an inflation hedge, but that is nowhere near the dominant exposure in the emerging market index. It's really much more China um, and the China-related complex, 40% is something like that uh, in terms of exposure in the China complex. And so we think the growth characteristics that dominate not only from a geographic perspective, but also from a sector perspective are just really attractive. Um, technology, much greater exposure. Financials is still an important part of it. But it's nowhere near the heavy industrial manufacturing, like commodity, old world EM that it once was. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. 
Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. You, you know, uh, Mark, uh, Amanda just mentioned uh, the, the, the bugbear here, inflation. That was really what got us kick-started in, ter- in terms of the reflation trade. It was like a reflation slash inflation trade. Uh, what do you think about these base effects uh, versus a year ago? How do they play out over the medium term? Is inflation a worry for you? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that uh, I think we've probably seen the bottom of inflation. I mean, I think that the, those prints last year were just like mind-blowingly low. And so, I mean, as, as Amanda says, the economy stalled. And of course, when you stall the economy, price pressures disappear. In fact, we were having deflation. Uh, but I do think that uh, we are seeing as, as part of the opening up process. So there's the base effect. And then there's the opening up effect where you have bottlenecks and different timing of it. But I, I think that from almost all the major central banks have said the same thing. And that is they want to look past the initial rise in inflation that we're going to get starting perhaps uh, when we get this month's read next month. They want to look past this. And I think that both, uh, uh, well, the ECB was very clear on this. And I think the Fed was as well, is that the, this, what, we're going to, what we're about to experience is going to be transitory and primarily technical in nature, having to do with the base effect and some of these bottlenecks. But I think that for some people, the kindling wood for inflation is there, whether it's the monetary stimulus plus the fiscal stimulus. Uh, many people, I think, are getting ahead of themselves. because It's so sexy to say this, that the, uh, you know, calling to an end of a 40-year downtrend in inflation and in interest rates. So it's, it's, it's like a kind of like how many times can you make a call of an end of a 40-year trend? But I, right. I, I think that uh, I, I sort of want to take the attitude of my friends in Missouri, the show me state. I'll become convinced when it's really there in the numbers. I think that's a big shift from the Federal Reserve. It's not just so much the average rate of inflation, but it's really about the about how they understand inflation and inflation expectations. And they want to see it in the real numbers not just in the, prod, the projections and the models and expectations. So generally, I'd say that for most of us, I think that uh, we won't know if this inflation is sustainable. We won't know probably until uh, early next year, middle of next year. Uh, but So we should expect this inflation scare here in the spring and then to cool off over the summer. So when we get that, uh, well, the Federal Reserve doesn't meet until uh, the middle of June. And so they're not going uh, to see the uh, PCE print for the month of June when they meet. But that's likely, it may have likely to be the peak of this uh, of this base effect on inflation. And we should begin seeing it uh, slip a little bit until we get towards the end of the year, we get these tough comparisons again. So, but in general, I think that out of all of our problems, and I do say we're challenged on many fronts, inflation probably is not the biggest. You know, we, we just saw that uh, weekly jobless claims today, and it was the lowest number, I think, since the, uh, uh, we're back below where we peaked, right, in 08 and 09. But uh, we're still talking about uh, roughly, after, if I'm right about next Friday's jobs number, we're talking about still 9 million people who were working in 2019 who aren't working now. And I think that is a bigger challenge, getting those people back. And even if you make some conservative assumptions, 300,000 a month, 400,000 a month, how long is it going to take us to get back to 9 million jobs? So to me, that is the bigger challenge. But I think, of course, the uh, getting this vaccine, and you know, we've got several states now that are seeing a flaring up of cases again. And so Europe is in the middle of a much bigger a third wave of such. But uh, I think we, uh, to your point, uh, at Amanda's point very early on, we're not through with the pandemic yet. Yeah, uh, that is the unfortunate thing. And uh, Amanda, let me ask you, I know because we're running short of time, 
uh, bonds. How do you respond in terms of your bond portfolio to the inflation uh, uh, boogeyman? Uh, wh what do you do uh, with bonds? Because you know they went up to like 175 on the U.S. 10-year. Now we're at like 160. What what's your allocation there? What do you see happening? Well, it's tough to find a lot of uh, attractive options in plain vanilla fixed income, right? With rates even where they are, it's still a pretty tough slog out there. And so part of the conversation with clients is definitely resetting and reevaluating expectations around what a core fixed income portfolio might do for you. Um, we do actually think there are still opportunities while valuations and core are really pricey. We do think that there are some opportunities in things like leverage loans, high yield, and even emerging market debt, right? I like EM equities. I also like EM debt for a very similar um, set of reasons, but we think in the below investment grade space, while it's a little bit of a buyer beware, right? We don't, we don't want to back up the truck in terms of these below investment grade exposures. We do think that there are pockets of opportunity still, even where rates have moved to, even where spreads have compressed to. And so to try and nudge a little bit further out the risk curve a bit without taking on undue risk and not being compensated for it, we think that there are some uh, places where those asset allocations can make sense. But again, it's not an all in. We're still trying to keep a fairly diversified fixed income portfolio and just recognizing and working with clients to understand that your fixed income portfolio going forward is not necessarily what uh, it has done for you in the past. You know, when you take interest rates from 2% to zero in a matter of a couple of weeks, as the Fed did last year, you pull forward a ton of return. And so we think it's just going to be really choppy, if not under pressure over the next few years until we start to see some adjustments around policy. And also with regard to uh, junk, uh, high yield, you're talking double B, uh, single B, or how far down are you willing to go? And uh, what about municipal bonds there? Um, that's that's about as far as we would go. We're not going down into the lowest uh, level, so I wouldn't even call it junk. <laughs> I would just call it high yield. Even if you can say, I don't know if it's technically high yield, <laughs> given where yields have fallen to 3.9 or whatever, doesn't seem all that high, but I guess it's all relative. So yeah, we would be in the higher end of the spectrum and definitely not calling it junk. Um, but so we think that there are pockets of opportunity there, and especially through actively managed strategies. Again, it's the same message that applies to EM. We think especially in this environment and in this credit cycle, the ability for active managers to do the credit analysis and pick and choose exposures relative to a benchmark, so impactful, so value add. And we've already seen that really over the last 12 months play out. Munis, it's a tough slog. I mean, right, we're in a very growth and yield starved world. And so, you know, it's somewhat of a necessary evil for many of our private wealth clients. So we're not necessarily backing away from it. But I think it just comes back to this idea of resetting expectations. You know, the, the closer we are to zero from a policy perspective, the more volatility we're likely to see. I knew I was going to get this high vol story back in one way or another. We're coming full circle here. But um, the closer you are to zero from a policy stance, you know, the more likely you are to see volatility in not only rates, but also in the performance of these exposures. And that's really what we're seeing. You know, everyone says, oh, high volatility 
and think about equities only. But we've actually seen a pretty meaningful pickup in volatility and fixed income, too. And so, again, it just comes back to a setting expectations conversation and staying really close to clients around fixed income positioning in particular. Well, uh, Amanda, we're going to uh, let you have the last word here. Both of you, I want to thank you for coming on. And we'll have to uh, talk again soon, either as a, you know, a trio or perhaps uh, individual interviews. I would love that. Thank you. It'd be great. Thank you very much. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.